Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Michael Zalavari, and oh my god, there is so much racing that we have to catch up on. And we're really bad at planning our time, because life is hard, and schedules are difficult. But, we are going to make an effort to catch up on the WEC Portimao round, round 2 of Season 9 today. Uh, and give us a bit of an update on all of the LMH and LMDH permutations that have been happening over the last little while. There's been a lot of news that's come out over the last two or three months that we've not quite touched on as much as we should have. So that'll be our goal for today. And joining me on this journey today, I have Oliver Trewiverse. Ollie, good to have you back. How are you? Not bad, not bad. Nice. It's finally good, good warm weather. Oh, don't, don't. Okay, that's it. Podcast over. That's it. Too easy. Too easy. <laughs> oh, I am so jealous. It is properly winter down under, and even though it's what I does this even sound cold to you? If you are listening, leave a comment. Twelve degrees, thirteen degrees. I'm I'm absolutely freezing my bum off here. Oh, it's nice little knitwear weather. Oh, it's the lovely. It's the worst, and I hate it. Anyway, uh, it's been it, there's been a lot of racing, hasn't there? <laughs> We are so far behind. Yes, this uh, European season is starting to kick off now, and and it's like we're already some seasons or series are already talking about their summer break happening. So it's already it's come up on us so quickly, and like there's two ELMS rounds that we have to talk about. There's the Nurburgring 24 hours that we have to to wrap up. There's been a bunch of IMSA rounds that we haven't quite cottoned on to yet. Plus, you know, in two months' time, we're going to be talking about Le Mans. We're actually going to be Talking about Lamar the day after, hopefully. Well, this, at least this will be the day after Lamar happens. In oh no, this will be the day before Lamar. Uh, at the time of recording, in two months' time. So there's plenty of of talking to do. Um, but before we get into any of that, we'll just give a, sp- a shout out to our sponsor, the Racing Line app, your motorsport calendar. Uh, customize your notifications for any series that you want to follow. Uh, converted straight into your time zone now on Android, which is very very exciting. Uh. Have you have you downloaded the app yet, Olive? You actually had a look at how it works. I have. Yes. It's, Get in. It's pretty nifty. I'm I'm very much enjoying. it. Of course, like as as an Android user, I've been shilling this product for the past six months without actually even you know having it. But now I do have it, and I can say it's very very good. And the notifications uh, keep me up at all hours of the night because I choose to be notified of things when I should be sleeping. <laughs> But it does well. It does well. Much is life for yeah, exactly. a sports car fan. Uh, especially a fan on this side of the planet where the sports car racing happens in the evening. But anyway, uh, let's talk about some sports car racing that happened in the evening just last week. Or evening for me. Uh, WC 8 Hours of Portimao. Round 2 of the Season 9. We had, of course, the, the new Glickenhaus uh, make its debut in the championship. Uh, a new track for the championship as well. Uh, not quite a new format. The eight-hour format has been used at Bahrain now twice before, um, to varying degrees of success. Oli, uh, what were your thoughts on how the eight hours of Portimao went for the WEC as as a whole, as, as a racing product? I think it was good. Um, it's difficult to keep everyone engaged for such a long, long round, uh, long race. There was a bit of a lull um, in the middle, where not so much was happening. It was just general lapping um, from each car. But then just with everything, it kind of converges all 
uh, to the end of the race where then the different strategies kind of overlap and come back together so I, th I think it was it was good in that respect that it didn't just stay apart and just fizzle out um there was still interest uh coming down right to the end you know will there would there be a, a safety car with the stranded uh high class um yes. uh, at the with or 25 minutes to go 20 minutes to go there could have been a safety car which bunched it up and then made the battle for the race win interesting and you know we still had the the fight in lmp2 right at the end in the last stint yes yes we did um and uh you know that's a great example of how the race was bookended um because there was the fighting at the start even between the two the top two in p2 were fighting on the first lap <laughs> if not the first corner yes and uh yeah there, there was there was lots to talk about and then you know there was the the ebbs and flows of um talking about how glickenhouse got on um yeah lots to talk about there but um yeah things lots of talking points yeah and we'll expand on all of these as we go through the uh through this podcast uh today uh i think it you're absolutely right about there being a lull and i think this is a problem not not necessarily a problem i don't want to say it's a problem but it's definitely a a product that you see a lot more for those longer races for the eight hours the 10 hours the 12 hours even to an extent it does get to a point where the strategies have diverged so far that they it's hard to keep track of, not that it's hard to keep track of where everyone is but everyone's kind of in their own little bubble uh but the the mid-race safety car for the stranded arc bratislava car uh in the gravel tap of turn eight that really threw the cat amongst the pigeons so to speak uh really kind of reinvigorated the race so uh, like does does it, is it a problem that the safety car reinvigorated things is is that is that something that we should be concerned by is that saying that the racing product is not good enough on its own um no not not necessarily per se i think it's just reinforcing the um the need to exercise patience with with this aco style of racing yeah where you have it set up um you basically spend the middle portion of the race after it started to settle down you use that to just look out at who's burning their amateur drive time now or who's burning their tires yeah. through now compared to who's who's going slow um conserving um tire life fuel maybe to then set it up for the final stint um or the final hour or the final hour and a half yeah um i think part of that is enhanced by using live timing because then you can react and understand um what's happening in real time so that you can then kind of be excited for the final stint or the final hour. Whereas if you don't have that, then you might just think, oh, it's just going to be more of the same when usually at these races, it isn't. Yeah. Um, part of that is, is trust. Um, and you just got to trust that these ebbs and flows will all kind of overlap and line up with each other um, at the end. Um, it's kind of, you think of it as maybe like, um 
I've, planets I've just got an allergy, an allergy that sun. I can drop in right here. Yeah. Uh, like the, the shorter endurance races, like the three hours, the four hours, they're like your T20 of endurance racing. They're all uh, hack and smash and everything's happening. Big bash. Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the big bash. Side door bash. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, and that's, that's true for some of the LMS racing we've seen this season. It has been absolutely door bashing. Uh, and then on the other hand, your 24-hour races, they're like your test matches. They're, you know, you've got to be, con- you, you can kind of come in and out of it. Um, but each time you come in, you can kind of get the threads of the stories all together and really invest that time into understanding what's going on. Then you can leave and then you can come back and get that same sort of thing. Whereas this is the, the 10 hours or the 8 hours, they, they're kind of, or your 12 hours even, they're kind of like your your one day is. You know, they start off, you know, there's the, the power play to start with and everyone's trying to settle in and sort themselves out. And then you've got those middle overs where, you know, the, the spinners are on and you know, they're just rotating the strike. And then towards the end of the innings, that's when you start to get the tension and the, the big shots. That's that's kind of like the, the analogy that's working in my head and for those in uh, in cricket playing countries that all makes sense and anyone who doesn't know what cricket is is just going what are they talking about at the moment would you say that's fair way to alienate listeners yeah sorry uh, (laughs) sorry everyone in america um i don't know what's it's like the difference between i don't know they have any long sports in america or different formats i don't know baseball yeah but even then i don't know i don't really watch any american sports that's filled with too many ads Anyway, <laughs> speaking um, of, you should what, download us. <laughs> one one way you could um, think of it as in terms of the way these these sports kind of ebb and flow is um, a, another example that you I think you missed that we both agree on is like the Tour de France yes. and Grand Tour cycling. Yes. Where you've got the storylines of the stage versus the storylines of the overall. And then you've got climbing competition, sprint competitions, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's all layers overlapping and um and how they all line up at some point so the way i think of it is like different planets orbiting (laughs) the sun Uh and it's like they're all orbiting at different speeds but sometimes they line up and it's kind of trying to get those stars to align or those planets to align like in the last hour kind of thing um and this race did pretty well at that uh even with the safety car interruption in the middle you know we had a a tense controversial for the questionable reasons finish in LMP1 a very very good finish in LMP2 that was a cracking battle to the flag even after uh everything that went on in that class uh GTE Pro was was marred by a few uh issues for for the Porsches uh that we'll talk about further on which is actually a part of the conditions and a part of the track as well and I do briefly want to discuss the Algarve circuit for for prototype racing uh and then GTM was that that had so many things going on in that class with with you know favorites getting taken out and running into problems and penalties it was it was a bit of a madhouse but a, a very deserved victor in in that respect let's talk about Algarve the circuit we've seen it in the four hour format for the ELMS a few times it's been the season closer uh in 2017 and 2018 and I think also maybe 2019 uh how how do we think how do we think it went for the eight hours and the WEC? Possibly a high quality of driving talent and professionalism in the WEC, and and did that, did that make it better or did that make it different? Or I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think it was quality. It, it was. It's great to watch with the, the the rise and fall. The the amateurs love the track. It doesn't have the sort of name and provenance of Spa Francorchamps, but it still has that sort of similar aesthetic um 
in terms of the the elevation changes of the oh, corners. Yeah. Um, definitely. Uh, so it looks like a f- fun track for the amateur drivers to to enjoy. It has a bit of everything, really. It's got the high speed corners, the low speed corners, the long straights, and and yeah, yeah, the, the sweeping sweeping sections as well. Really cool. Something I noticed uh, while watching is that it was a lot more difficult to pass the the GT cars. Well, that's not actually that's not actually true. Uh, let me let me try that entire thing again. Because you can pass at so many different parts of the circuit, uh, because it is wide and you've got these great corner combinations. It means that when you're battling through traffic, you have to be more daring. There was a few times that there was contact in traffic, I think particularly with the LMP2s, but there was also one or two instances uh, the Glickenhaus got involved with a LMP2 car before it had its major accident. I think one of the AF Corsa cars had a touch with the the higher class cars. It's one of those things that because you can pass... If you're in a battle, you must pass because if you lose even one, two tenths of a second, that can blow out to half a second by the time you get to the end of the next timing beam. So it, it, it seemed like it was more difficult to pass, but I think the, the reality of that was that it was easier to pass, but you had to be more daring to pass. I think that's a, a, a product as well uh, of stratification. Yes. So um, stratification um, is uh, definition is kind of like layerification, um, making sure each class has got its distinct band of lap time that it fits in so that they don't overlap. And if they overlap, then it muddies up everything. Yeah. So um, bringing those layers together by slowing down LMP2 so they're closer to GT Pro and slowing down hypercar well or, or hypercar being slower yeah. uh, than LMP1 um it then means that the different it's it's less easy to overtake a lower class car so therefore to get past you need to up the risk reward um kind of balance or equation so i think it's just a product of of what we're we're going to be seeing now in in before it um shakes out so there are rumors of um michelin bringing a better tire for the hypercars so then that should help out um with this um pace balance but um we saw it spa drivers taking risks p2s taking risks and writing off chassis at mm. blanchiment um i think that's going to be a product of um this stratification uh, of this season teams um especially in the higher classes they're going to take those risks to try and get through in traffic because that's one of the only ways you can um, cement uh, a performance gap over another team if you can be able to pass one gt two corners before another car then you've got potentially a nice gap you can break away you can potentially break a toe um, that would help you you get past by the car behind. Yeah. So um, these things are really crucial in endurance racing, and it ups the risk value, and therefore it ups the danger value. So, um, like I said, we've had some issues with cars being written off, but thankfully, um, no drivers was... being written off. Well, yes, but also it was a pretty 
damage free in the most part. Um, there were some issues, especially with the clicking house. Yeah, um, and we'll talk. We'll talk explicitly about that and about what uh, you know our thoughts on clicking house's debut. It's anonymous and ignominy. That word debut. Uh, but we'll yeah, we'll discuss that. I I don't think it's. I I can certainly see see your point there. That's not something I had considered, but Spa. I didn't think Spa was that different or that affected or that unexpected in terms of the inter-class traffic. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking for something that isn't there. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 these these things will... It's kind of just a little shift um, in in how the races are run. And yeah. I think it's just something to, to get used to. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, back to the track, I think Portimao needs more cool racing and needs more eyes on it. I mean, obviously with F1 there now, it'll it certainly increases profile. But I think Martin Haven and Alan McNish were talking right at the very top of the, the broadcast saying, uh, with McNish saying, this is one of the uh, one of those tracks that makes you want to come out of retirement. So <laughs> I think, because <laughs> I don't think McNish ever raced there because it's still a, a relatively new circuit in, term, in in modern senses. Yeah, and it's kind of off the beaten track. Yeah. Um, literally and figuratively or metaphorically yeah you don't see many high profile events there but also it's kind of in the middle of nowhere yeah uh so it's it's stature and it's it's uh prestige is certainly on the up now with the elms and with i think the first race i watched there was a blank pain gt race what like five years ago or something like that so now to see moto gp there elms uh, WEC and Formula One, it's certainly grown in stature. Uh, but so has the LMH class with another race in the books. And this was, I got to say, much more competitive, much more thrilling from a uh, a you know tension building perspective than the race at Spa. Spa, it was clear pretty much from the outset. Uh, you know, apart from maybe one stint that the Toyotas had much better play- pace, but in uh, at, at Portimao, the Alpine was certainly the. It felt like it was the much quicker car, and I know that's not the case, but it felt like it could actually mount a challenge to the Toyotas. And for a lot of the race, uh, with Lapierre and uh Thomas Laurent in the car as well, it was the fastest car on track. It was the fastest car in qualifying as well. So. It was it was mighty mighty close in the end. In the end, it was strategy. Well, not strategy, but fuel economy that let them down. And this is a product of the the LMH balancing system. You know, the grandfathering system for the old LMP1 car. Uh, Ollie, you've run the numbers uh, for your fantastic, incredible sports car engineering blog. That you should, if you haven't checked that out, you should definitely check that out. What did you find hidden in the data that you could share with us? Well, it's not exactly hidden. Um, well, what did you find? Quite, in, what did you go to the effort to find in the data that none of us, none of us who have less time or less care or less effort to offer didn't find right so um (laughs) hypercar uh, their engine powers have gone up but also their weight has gone up um so a lot of more of a lump to move around the racetrack so upping the engine power upping the weight but keeping the stint lengths reasonably similar what you got to do you got to throw more fuel at it um, so the, the fuel tanks for Le Mans Hypercar and in future LMDH as well, they're going to have to be accommodating for uh, bigger fuel tanks. When you grandfather uh, an LMP1 tub into this, 
you can't cut the tub up to fit <laughs> a the fuel, fuel tank. tank. Yeah. It's designed around the fuel tank um, kind of position and the engine position. Um, it's just one of those hard points that you just can't move without redesigning from the ground up. Um, and so their cars, they have a fuel allowance as part of the um, balance of performance. Um, so every car has an energy amount per stint that they can use, and that energy is converted into the, the mass of fuel per pit stop or per stint. And it's just physically not possible to fit the amount that the Alpines have allowed uh, to, or given to them in the rules inside the car. So on, on pace, they are almost identical uh, on pace to the Toyotas, which is ridiculous. We'll talk about that later. Um, it's just that they can go as fast, but they can't go as far. Yeah. So at this race, they would have to do an extra pit stop uh, on, on average. Um, the Toyotas didn't do the same number of pit stops, so it, it kind of muddies it up a bit. But um, you can think of it as four or six or an eight hour race. They look like they have to do an extra pit stop. Yeah. which takes them gives them you know um a minute a minute and a half let's say uh extra um on their total race time compared to an lmh product despite having let's say identical lap times yeah and uh, that was certainly the case at spark Rangerschamps, and that was again certainly the case at uh algarve we saw i think it was a was it 21 or 31 i think it was 31 lap stints from the Alpine, uh, whereas the Toyotas were making it to 36, 37 laps per stint. It was kind Round of ridiculous. Lap, yeah. uh, the uh, the length of stint uh, that the Toyotas could get out, because they, they were pitting it around the hour mark, like the old LMP1 cars used to back in like 2013, 2014, the first round of the hy uh, hybrid regulations, um, where they could basically pit on the hour every hour, like the old GTE cars. So uh, wh when you pulled all this into your analysis, uh, what did it show in, in the end? What were the differences between the pit stop, the cumulative pit stop time for the the Toyota number number eight car because I think that had the less least stops um, versus the number thirty six fewest stops fewest uh, pa yes pardon me they... sorry I am a I am a filthy convict I do not speak the Queen's English <laughs> so uh, the number eight had um, around total cumulative pit stop time at around eight and a half minutes um, and the uh, number seven had an extra pit stop so about nine and a half minutes so a, a bit less than a minute discrepancy between the two um but then the alpine they had um nearly 11 minutes so yeah wow. that really illustrates and if you overlay kind of their cumulative pits pit stop time against where they take those stops in the race it it kind of shows you um how often over time they have to get into the get into the pits so those those lines they diverge and it just shows you you know that discrepancy is just going to get a bit worse and worse uh, over time and then if you kind of uh, extrapolate or you know extend those lines for 24 hours uh, to to look at what would happen at the 24 hours of Le Mans you know that's that's only going to get worse and worse mm. so um, you know if you triple this race distance you're then going to get a discrepancy of you know three four minutes more maybe 
yeah, over a lap. Yeah, um, let's say just in the pit stops. So, um, on the one hand, having the average lap times being so close, that is something that that is really interesting in terms of confidence in the auto BOP system. Um, balancing cars that are wildly different. You know, this is an LMP1, which is performance. It, it was designed for a completely different performance window compared to this LMH, which is a hybrid. The LMP1 is a non-hybrid. There yeah. are so many yeah. differences. It's two-wheel drive versus four-wheel drive. So it's amazing how they could get these two cars built to different regulations um, within on an average pace of like a pace window of like 150 laps if you average them all together the lap times are going to be 200th different between the 7 and the 36 yeah so, so let's talk about that's that mental let's let's talk about that because i've i've looked through your article and that's the first thing that that comes up on it that absolutely astounded me so if you take what you've done here is you've taken the top 60 percent of the lap times and you've taken an average of them and and i just want to i just want to say these numbers because it's just astounding to me uh so for the number seven toyota it's a 132.177 that's the average of the top 60 percent of the lap times throughout the eight hours of the Algarve race. The to- number eight Toyota, a 132.212. So, you know, that's five hundredths of a second between the two Toyotas. The Alpine sits in between them. It's a 132.194. So, a- across the same number of laps, the Alpine certainly has the pace of the Toyotas. And if you actually look at the, you know, a, a lap time graph, which you've put in here, which I'm just going to share in the live chat now, the the Alpine's quicker in, in, in at peak speed. That's I I did not expect that. What what do you reckon? H- how has that happened? <laughs> Is that just the Nicola Lapierre effect? But like Toyota yeah. has good drivers could as be. well. It could be. Um, I think it it it, it shows how um the the Alpine was really pushing. Yeah. Um, so maybe taking more risks. It, it might be the case that they're they're finding it harder to. Um, overtake just just slightly compared to the because their consistency is slightly lower so if you kind of take an average gradient of that race trace um for their best laps then they're going to be slightly steeper so maybe over the 24 hours that discrepancy stretches the the average a bit slower than the toyotas okay yeah um but um yeah it it's ridiculous how they're still pretty closely matched. Yeah, it, as I said, it's there's a bigger distance in the Toyotas, the difference in la- average between the two Toyotas, than there is between the Alpine and either Toyota, which is just ri- ridiculous to me. Um, for those who maybe don't have the article at home, I'll just briefly describe what's happening in the graph. So the the two Toyotas are basically their their lap times, you know, start very very close to the one. 31 mark and then sort of trail off pretty consistently and nicely um the the alpine starts at the same mark but actually has a bit of a shallower trace to start with and then a steeper trace uh over the end so so you basically got the alpine alpine line crossing over the two toyota line so in the middle they're actually pretty average so so their average that time as we've described is basically the same um that and we've talked about the stint length to to say that the Alpine 
what lost another minute and a half in the pits. If you look at the 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 results for the race, and we'll, let's talk about the results. It was a Toyota one two. They were separated by a second. We'll talk about that in in a moment. But the Alpine was only a minute away from the two Toyotas. So if you remove that that extra pit stop from the equation. I know you can't just do that and the equi- it doesn't just simply work like that because that's part of the grandfathering process and the fact that they can't fit the fuel in and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you remove that minute and a half from their race time, they would have beaten the Toyotas. Like that that to me is astounding considering the fact that the ACO has traditionally been very how do I uh, what's the right word here? Very unkind to grandfathered cars because the whole point of grandfathering a car is extending a car's use period right you're not generally going to keep it competitive uh it's, it's a matter of you know extending the longevity of an investment and and you don't generally see a grandfathered car be given the opportunity to be competitive because no one wants to see the old regulations beat the new regulations. That's like the opposite of what the ACO wants to see from this hypercar season. Uh, so the fact that they're even that close, the fact that they're that close on lap time to me is just astounding. The fact that they've been given that opportunity is astounding. Yes. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about how these are two different uh, cars built to two di- wildly different technical regs um looking into the future we're going to have two uh technical regs as part of convergence yep um but their intended performance window is close together so if it's possible to balance these two wildly different technical regs so well then that gives you confidence into thinking that they're going to balance lap times well with lmdh and lmh now that's a big cloud hanging over the potential investments from OEMs on the fence. Um, And this is what I mentioned in my write-up in terms of Alpine. You know, if they're using this as a test bed to try and convince someone, using this data should be uh, very valuable to convince someone because you say, look, on these lap times, we're very competitive. We can compete. The issue is stint lengths that shouldn't be an issue going forwards if we make an lmdh yeah Um, or an lmh yeah yeah that's and if you're if you're one of the boffins who's worked on the the uh wc auto bop process looking at that data must be extremely gratifying that that's just a big tick in the box uh if you're if you're someone who's worked on that process to get it to to converge like that like that's that's incredible yeah it is um it now in terms of the product watching uh on television it's still not there because you you still have this this equal pace but you don't have them equal on track um, because of the discrepancy in the pit pit stops, um, what they could do to fix that is either one of two things: make the Alpine faster, so that the the lap times aren't equal, um, and then the but keep the pit stop discrepancy. Yeah. Um, arguably, then they would drink more fuel, um, meaning that the pit stop discrepancy could exist. Um, would anyway. get worse. Yeah. Um, it, so there's that. It's not the best idea. Or what you can do is you can um, reduce the energy allowance per stint of the Toyotas so that you then make them sit in the pits, 
for one more time. Uh, then... so, so effectively equalizing the, the stint lengths then. The, yeah, exactly. So the stint lengths will be equal. Um, the trouble with that is you would then push um, both cars back uh, over the eight hour period by a minute and a half to kind of be around where the, to- uh, where the Alpine finished. Uh, and the gap to the LMP2s there would be about three laps. Yeah. Whether that's acceptable or not uh, is a whole political question with the stratification system. I think that's fine. Uh, I think that's what they should do, reduce the energy allowance for the Toyotas um, or for LMHs um, and let them let them race wheel to wheel. Toyota have had a, a leg up for the championship already. Um, Alpine shouldn't be that much in the way for the title yeah. if they allow them to race wheel to wheel from now on to the end of the season. I think they should just um, get on with it and uh, make it. Let's have some wheel to wheel racing all the way through. Yeah, look, uh, as much as I'd I'd love to see that. I think the ACO is kind of fine with where it is at the moment. Like, if if you are the ACO, you've got your long-term investor, uh, you're keeping them happy because you've got them committed to your new regulations and you've got them winning comfortably uh, and they're not really threatened by a car running the old regulations and you've got a potential new client uh, testing the waters, being competitive without ever really having a chance at winning. And I think the ACO is going to be like mostly happy with that. They, I don't, as much as I'd love to see a proper equalized stint lengths, equalized pace, whatever battle between the Alpine and the Toyota and the Glickenhaus, we'll include them in this conversation. Why not? Um, across the whole race length, it's whatever, whatever. I just don't think the ACO, I don't think that's what the ACO wants from this season uh and looking at portimao i think they would be very happy with the product they've got whether or not that's a great viewing product is another is another thing it's still going to keep the people like you and i who are like neck deep in this stuff interested because we love pulling apart the numbers and we love endurance racing for the sake of endurance racing so we're not going to leave the championship uh lmp2 and gtm have plenty of action to fill in the gaps and so that's going to bring in other people and so i i think the aco is kind of fine with that uh and i yeah i'd love to see it but i don't i i don't think the i don't think it's going to happen unfortunately yeah. 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 Let's carry that same tone to the next conversation topic, which is Toyota, uh, who made some very puzzling decisions around their arrangements for the end of the race. Uh, so the number eight, uh, after their additional pit stop, came out of the pits only two or three seconds ahead of the sister car. Uh, remember, this is, you know, 20 minutes left in the race. They then instructed the uh instructed the number eight car which i think had um buemi at the wheel to drop behind the number seven car and allow the number seven to take the lead and take the win only to rescind that a a three or four laps later now i don't know about you but to me that's that's a bit of a piss take really like, yeah, we get it if you're going to say, stay in this order or swap around. But just to be playing freaking merry-go-round with the, the top two cars, like they don't give a shit about the rest of the race, that that to me is a bit disrespectful. Yeah, I think that's maybe a good word to describe it. Um, apparently, it was to do with the seven claiming that they had more pace and they were being held up, which is the classic 
uh, excuse um, for team orders. Um, I thought at first it was potentially to give the number eight a toe for a few laps so they could help save fuel. We've seen the the Toyotas kind of do this where they, they keep swapping to offset their fuel usage yep. so that they don't pit next to each other and um, screw up each other's pit stops. And the potential for that uh, was quite big here at Portimao because the 8 was trying to eke out um, the fuel mileage so that it avoided doing the extra stop, which the 7 had to do. So we knew on the last stint they were potentially running on fumes in terms of you know low fuel. Uh, and to be able to eke out that stint length to 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 get to the finish nice and safe, um, maybe it would have been good to um, have the seven in front to give it a toe. It's quite a long straight. It's kind of a bit like Fuji, where you've got this really long uh, start finish straight. Yeah, and um, apparently they had a, a, a blistering headwind down that straight on the race day as well. Yeah, so I think I think maybe that could have been a reason to to do such a. A, a weird changeover then, then in the why last not, why not say that then why um, not say hey let the other guy pass sit in his slipstream save the fuel why not make that public well then you would open up the opportunity for jose maria lopez to just sit behind and watch the car in front run out of fuel because w- what a baller move that would be <laughs> to that be would... told like hey your teammates running out of fuel go and give him a slipstream and just say no <laughs> And watch them have to pit. Well, uh, that, that would, would be brilliant. That would uh, certainly get. Uh, that would certainly put would uh, Lopez feathers. in the in the shoot books, wouldn't it? And, and like, uh, this might be something that uh, a few people new new watchers of sports car racing or new listeners to this podcast might find a bit, uh, uh, you know, troubling. The you know team orders in, in general, but like, I'm not perturbed by the team orders existing. Are, are you? It's a team sport. Yeah, exactly. Um, Sports car racing is a team sport. It's not just about one driver, one car. It's it's about the team. And like we've we've seen this in seasons past. We've seen this with Audi. We've seen this with Porsche. Porsche won a championship because they had team orders throughout the entire second half of the season in 2015. Like the fact that they put their team orders in for every single race after Le Mans. You know, everyone was crying. Oh, this is bullshit! You know, why? Why would they even do this? And then when the 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 championship leading car had problems in the last round of the, the season at Bahrain and had to limp across the line in last place in class and just managed to win the championship, it's like, well, that's why team orders exist. I don't have any issue with team orders. I have the, the issue with the way that they were implemented right then and there, swapping back and forth. I have more issues with team orders when there's less competition. Yeah, exactly. Um. It, it, you know historically one of the it, a good example for this is when corvette they were the only ones racing each other um over in uh america uh it would have been what alms days um gt1 days yeah exactly so you kind of it's kind of embarrassing when you're just racing yourselves uh now they aren't they're racing against alpine and glickenhaus but at the moment they're still because of the the pit discrepancy. They're kind of still racing against yeah. themselves, and it is doing a disservice to the people watching um, to do these sorts of team orders where you you want to trust your drivers. They're supposed to be some of the best drivers in the world that you can trust them to 
to race each other even just a little bit um it's something that we've grown used to in just having the toyotas just following each other uh two by two along you know like noah's ark mm. um and we kind of want them to add a little bit of spice now they they can't afford to risk any issues though because the alpine is so close and it's never they've never had historically anyone this close so it's something that they're never going to do um there's no incentive to do it uh, it's just frustrating yeah I, I i think not only that it's also a little disrespectful and that's that that's my issue i honestly wouldn't have had any issues if they just said hold position for the last 20 minutes or if they just said swap and hold position but like swap to swap back that to me is a bit of a, a, a piss take um either way they won they can take their victory and put it with all the other meaningless victories they've had over the past two or, two or three seasons. <laughs> That's so mean to say, but uh, it's one of those difficult things, right? Because if they're not really fighting any uh, just competition uh, on the same playing field, then do those victories really mean anything? I mean, yeah, you've got three Le Mans in not a row. Not their fault. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. You can only beat who turns up. But I don't know. This is This is treading into legacy and differences in history and etc etc maybe we should move on from this glickenhaus ACO bad, right? am i right pardon <laughs> aco bad <laughs> am I right? yeah exactly aco bad uh what fia good no that can't be right no imps are good <laughs> that can't be right either supercars <laughs> good even though they've got their own parody <laughs> anyway leave that behind glickenhaus uh one car they had issues. They they their goal was to get to the finish. Their goal was to beat the P twos. Unfortunately, they had a major problem uh, thanks to a on track incident where I think it was Briscoe at the wheel at the time moved across uh, while passing two GTE AM cars that were being passed just passed by the twenty two United LMP two into turn five on the Portimao circuit, and that basically killed the two gtm cars which we'll talk about a little later on uh and then also in the process of getting that car refired briscoe uh uh, fried the clutch so they had to spend an hour uh fixing the clutch this was also after they were struggling with tire wear and tire overpressure. uh one car in that race that's not the way that they would have wanted that race to go for them yeah lots to learn um i think is the best way to describe it because they had the 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 tire issues um they were being described in terms of switching on the tires coming out of the pits as an issue um especially in qualifying and then um trying to double stint uh, part of the key of these pit regs is um you want to make sure you can double stint because um you can't refuel and change tires at the same time anymore so if you can do a pit stop without changing tires you save 20 seconds let's say yeah the time it takes to to swap the tires around then the question uh, is new new wheels on yeah and then the question is does do you then lose that 20 seconds by not having good tires over the course of your stint or having tire degradation over the course of your stint that's the the flip-flop there um but they seem to really struggle in the first part of the race i think westbrook had one or two laps where he was uh, I think uh, well, uh, the start wasn't great for them anyway because they were behind some of the GTE cars at the start. But even after fiddling his way out of that, Westbrook was languishing at the the tail of the LMP2 field for a long time. Yeah, um, it was kind of a bit 
reminiscent of the start of Spa, where the Alpine couldn't get past the LMP2s. Yeah. Um, it's just they only had one to deal with, with the Alpine, uh, with the, the Alpine and the United Order Sports. Whereas with the Glickenhaus here, they were just stuck in traffic and um, they had to wait a long time to get clear track. Um, but it's a learning process. Uh, they've got a lot of information. Um, it's all well and good having a 30-hour test at Aragon where you're on your own. Um, having, you know, they'll learn some more things from racing and um, change the setup, learn about how the tyres work, especially in the multi-stints, the race pace, that sort of thing. Hopefully they'll do well at Monza, um, but we'll see. Yeah, we, we've we've had the the issue with the long right hand yeah. turn at Portimao, Parabolica, Curva, Curva Grande, Grande yeah, long Lesmos. right hand corners, um, both Lesmos we'll as well, right handers. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, encouraging signs though. Um, you are allowed to say no. Y- unconvinced unconvinced so far but i'm expecting to be convinced in future i i think monza will be a much better litmus test for their actual capabilities i think portimao is a circuit that does not suit the design philosophy of the car and glickenhaus has said that said that himself it's it's he said it is a car to be driven at Le Mans and we've seen that uh the high downforce setups uh in seasons past do not work at Le Mans and the low downforce setups that work at Le Mans do not work at other rounds of the series even to an extent Spa Francorchamps uh so I I think Monza will be a much better indicator of where they are what improvements they need to make and how far away they are from the the accepted pace of LMH at the moment uh they were setting some decent lap times though and they did end up getting classified which by the way is a better result than a few other recent uh forays into the top class of prototype racing uh that have existed uh nissan particularly being one you could also argue that janetta is another but we'll leave that conversation well enough alone shall we uh yeah so monza they'll have two cars Hopefully that'll be a better race for them. Uh, let's look at LMP2 now. And it was a frantic start in LMP2. You had the pole sitter and their teammate getting into contact around turn three. And if you are a team manager, that is absolutely zero out of 10 what you want to happen at the first corner, isn't it? The first rule of motor racing is don't hit your teammate. And then the asterisk is on that don't spin them as well. <laughs> exactly. And so you have you had I honestly it was amazing that that uh who was it, Gonzalez? No, not Gonzalez, who am I talking about? Uh that uh Yeah, yeah, it was Gonzalez in the number thirty eight who was facing backwards. It was honestly incredible that he just didn't get cleaned up by anyone. The whole field managed it was to Blomquist and oh, De Costa. Sorry, Blom, yeah. Blom... Was it Blomquist and De Costa, the the two guys started and finished the cars together. Ah, so that's why they they had the kind of narrative of oh, will they do it again? Yes, kind of thing. I think at the very end of the race, uh, and yeah. yeah, I guess you know, spoilers, everyone. Uh, yeah, those two cars that were you know making contact and spinning backwards in turn two on the first lap, turn three on the first lap, rather, were the two cars in a grandstand finish for the the win in LMP two right at the very end. Uh, the fact that the the number pardon me, 38 car managed to navigate the field and get back 
to to fight for a race win, let alone take the race win. That to me is incredible. And I don't know why I'm surprised. This is still Joda Sport, but like I have not, I did not expect this from this team this season. It's been it's been a fair while since Joda Sport has been a powerhouse, but boy, it is so good to see them back and being heavyweights again. Yeah, um, it I think it really highlights the standard of um, LMP2 teams when we're kind of forgetting and sleeping on Jota Sport. Yeah, right. When, you know, we've got we've got WRT who are amazing. Um, you've got United Auto Sports who won pretty much everything for the, you know, a year ago. Yeah, it, it's brilliant that how the, the standard that we have at the top are, are part of that obviously is having some ridiculously good silver drivers yeah um and but, some just ridiculously good yeah. drivers like i i i had this you know kind of coming to jesus moment at the beginning of the lmp uh, at the portimao race like holy crap half of the field in lmp2 has formula one experience that's like that's ridiculous. That 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 is so crazy to me that the, these guys are effectively drivers at the pinnacle of motorsports or have been at the pinnacle of motorsports, and they're racing not even in the top class, not even in a fully pro outfit. These are you know okay nominally pro am cars with a silver driver, but still it's it's it's, it's ridiculous how how good the quality in P two is at the moment. It's a good, uh, good setup as well for um, uh, angling yourself for a drive in the new top class when mm. all of these new OEMs join. So yeah, and we'll talk about that in the second half of today's episode. So you know, Joda Sport had a great race. Following on from the double podium at uh, Spa Francorchamps, they they picked up another. Uh, they picked up one two this time. So so big wins for them and for the number thirty eight Roberto Gonzalez, uh, Antonio Felix da Costa, and Anthony Davidson. That's really really cool to see because after being championship contenders a few years ago, they went through a really rough run uh, as part of the Dragon Speed outfit last season uh, and also I think the season before. So to see them back on like giant killing pace well sorry being the giant pace that's really really cool to see um thoughts on Blomqvist and Galeo uh I, I just out of the blue thoughts great great uh, you know there's a lot of people memeing on Sean Galeo um sure he had some tough uh, a tough uh return to P2 in Asian Le Mans series with a few mistakes, but also silence those critics. Um, winning was it both the pre the last two rounds? Both um, the last two rounds, but particularly the last round for me. That was the one that made me go whoa. Yeah, and he's turned that around. And you think uh, you, at this race uh, where there's a lot more on the line, he would be maybe taking more risks and making more mistakes, but actually. He's done really great, uh, you know, and and with Blomquist, um, yeah, brilliant pro driver. Um, there's nothing more to add to See, that. Really, I I I kind of disagree there. Like, sure, he's quick and that's incredible, and he he's awesome for the team. But to me, he's been a bit ag- too aggressive. Like the, some of the moves he was making in traffic were making me you know like 
making my eyes is making my eyes water making my what, what's the expression there though it was it wasn't clean and i think that's a, a a you know part of the fact that he's come from a gt3 factory program i think it was former uh bmw pro yes that is exactly right and so maybe he's just more used to a bit more of a, a bump and a barge but like in in prototypes, like he he got points deducted from his license for making contact with the Alpine going up Eau Rouge, and he hasn't really shown a a cool head in those situations. I don't know. Uh, it's just something about his driving style strikes me as a bit too aggressive, over aggressive, uh, uncompromised. Uncompromising is the word I want to use. That's that's the word. And and sometimes when get, processing traffic, you do have to be compromising. Um, so I, I just want to put a tab there and we can return to that in, I don't know, two or three months time post Le Mans and see how that changes. Uh, what about the rest of the field? Um, WIT, uh, finished in fourth place after taking two drive-through penalties, um, kind of shooting themselves in the foot there. They finished one lap and 30 seconds back from, uh, sorry, one lap back from the race winner. Uh, but that was less than a lap back in total because of where the Toyota cars finished. So, uh, you know, within two drive-through penalties and potentially being uh, in the mix, certainly within drive through, two drive-throughs of being on the podium, Team United uh, Autosports taking that one, uh, continuing their streak of podiums. Not their streak of wins, unfortunately. That has finally come to an end in WEC competition. So big tears if you're a United fan. You've you've gone from winning everything to becoming third. Oh, no. Um, I was really impressed with Inter Europol, and I want to really stress this. They have become world beaters overnight with the Orica and with Habsburg. Uh, sorry, with... Uh, oh, where have I gone? Uh, with Delatraz and Brundle. That is a, an incredible driver lineup. And it kind of shows to me that their problem all along was the Ligier, which is bad if you're a Ligier fan, I guess. Yeah, but on the other hand, they've never had a driver lineup like this as well. Um, they previously had, I think, a double silver lineup in European Le Mans series. Yeah, um, featuring Rene Binder racing, and Matevis Yeah, Binder. Yeah, and, and Smichowski isn't the best silver um but this that's part of the thing with the orica is it helps your amateur driver gain lap time um and and we've seen a number of easier to drive yeah and we've seen a number of uh silver drivers make the transition from either the Ligier chassis to the or the Delara chassis to the orica and be immediately quick and one that i can think of straight off the top of my head is uh your not sorry fritz van erd uh, I think he was a classic example going from the Delara, which was an absolute, we'll call it a beast, but think of another B word there, um, and then getting into the Orica. And he won his second race in it with, I mean, you know, with some help, of course. You don't just go uh, as a bronze driver win a WEC race, but still it's, yeah, it, it, the, the Orica has been the car that has been the best, most neutral car for the amateurs. Yeah, definitely. Uh, any other major stories that you want to touch on? While we're talking about uh, Racing Team Nettle, and they ran into trouble. They uh, had a suspension failure after making contact with the number 51 AF Corsa Ferrari um, in the latter part of the circuit. Uh, I think that was uh, Job van Oetert who was behind the wheel, and he was 
he was well torn up about uh, the damage and uh, how that affected the team. So uh, not a great day for them. They lost out on the Pro-Am uh, victory, which went to real team racing, which is a pretty pretty decent result for them. They they finished six laps off the pace in uh, LMP2 overall, but to still take home a Pro-Am victory is pretty impressive. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> they would definitely rub it in across the garage because they're both <laughs> run by TDS. Yes, yes, you're right as well. That is, oh, wow, I forgot about that. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh, that must that must make it hurt all the more for for Van Oxen. Did you did you see that interview that he gave almost immediately after getting out of the car? Yeah, he was I distraught. Just to give him a hug. Yeah, I mean, you know, with appropriate social distancing measures and everything, but yeah, it's, you just wanted to give him a hug. He's still a very young guy. I, I keep forgetting he's he's only what twenty one or something like that. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh man. What was I doing when I was 20? What were you doing when you were 21, Ollie? You don't want to know. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that wallet off alone. Uh, something that did come out of the LMP2 race at Portimao uh, was a few comments from a few drivers throughout the field, most notably James Collado, who uh, made a, a very pointedly word, was it an Instagram post or a tweet? Um, describing, I think it was an Instagram yeah, and a tweet. Des- it was both, yeah. Yeah. Uh, describing the... the actions and driving behaviors of one of the LMP2 drivers as as being problematic. I can't remember the exact wording, um, but it, it was certainly uh, not flattering for uh, for one of the drivers. Here it is. I've, I've found it. So um, after a bit of thought, there was an LMP2 AM driver yesterday racing with GTs, pretty much destroying the majority of the DG, GT racing. Uh, he was completely dangerous. And frankly, I don't even know how he has a racing license. There's a few other things that he, he made there, but this was circulated uh, around uh, through Collado's social cha- uh, channels and was retweeted or liked or whatever you do on those platforms nowadays um, by a few of the other drivers in GT we're pretty the the comments that have come out afterwards point and also you know the the performance throughout the race point to these comments being made in relation to Mira Konopka who's driver of the AFC Bratislava car how much validity do you give to these comments by Colado and by that have been supported by the GTE field based on your interpretations of the race and what we saw on track I'm putting you on well, the spot here. Well, Kanopka, he's he's pretty slow. Okay, it's just just that's just how it is. Um, in P2 racing, he's been doing it for a while now, and um, I remember watching at Le Mans maybe 2018, maybe, and he started the race and was well off the back of the p2 field and almost and only just in front of the gt pro field at le mans where there's a lot of straight lines where you just sit at full throttle and be faster and easily faster than the gts um so at a circuit like le mans where he's only just a bit faster than the gts on a clear track it's kind of a bit embarrassing um and that was when p2s were faster than they are now so, yeah, he in a P2 car, he does the lap times around about of the GT Pro cars. 
Um, and what makes that more dangerous is the fact that the P2 is going to be overtaking on the straight and then into the corner is he's going because of his talent he's going to be driving slower so you get this kind of rubber band elastic crossover of cars and that's where it becomes dangerous and that's what we talked about with the stratification kind of overlap um so yeah it's a bit awkward a bit awkward to say the least and we did we did see throughout the race firstly the oc bratislava car brought out the safety car by beaching it at turn eight so that's not really a big uh you know feather in the cap for for that car to start with um but they also had contact with the glickenhaus through turn three at one stage made contact with another gt car at least once uh caught on camera uh, and to support your point about you know lap times and stratification etc um of the of the entire LMP2 field uh the three drivers for the ARC Bratislava car so it's not just uh not just Konopka we're concerned about here in this context but also Oliver Webb and Thomas Jackson uh they were three uh, of the lo- the lowest six drivers in of the lower six, they were three of them, uh, if that makes sense. That's not a good way of phrasing it, but I'm going to stick with that anyway. Uh, and Konopka was o- almost a second slower than anyone else in a P2 car. So it, that is problematic. Now, let's just ignore Konopka for a second. We have seen amateur drivers be slow and be... I don't want to say problematic, but... Uh, sketchy. Be sketchy. We'll use that word for now. Um you know, in in GTE classes, in LMP2 classes for, you know, a, a number of years at Le Mans and at other racetracks. Uh, you know, Satoshi Hoshino ha- was involved in that incident with the Corvette a few years ago, uh, and he ended up pulling out of the race, which meant that his car was pulled out of the race. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, we, we said at the time that, you know, maybe that's uh, something that the, the driver needs to sort of measure up and see how he feels before the the event um we've seen i think it was uh, uh last year one of the eurasia drivers um who finished the race in p2 uh who am i thinking of uh nobuya yamashita we were saying that he was not a liability on track but something very close uh closely approaching it now does there need to be a duty, a more stringent duty of care by the series itself in ensuring that a certain safety, a, a certain minimum standard is met by all the drivers so that way there aren't any safety concerns or reduced safety concerns? Is that something that falls on the series to ensure that, uh, ensure that they police? Yeah, so the... the... Um, the series operate in the race. They have a duty of care, I suppose, to um, the the cars and the, the entries. And part of that is driving standards. And the way that it works is the bronze driver rating is kind of like a catch-all yeah. of anyone under a certain level. Um, and therefore that includes some, um, the kind of, lowest rung of of racing standard um it can be a bit awkward and i think this is an example of it being awkward but it's difficult 
to police, maybe you could only do it reactionary, but after you've had these sorts of races, you know, how do you prove to someone before they've raced that they're not good enough? Do you do simulator time? Like you have to do simulators as a rookie at Le Mans to prove that you're safe. Um, maybe, but who pays for that? Do you yeah. risk cancelling a, a team entry because he's the one bringing the team? He's the one bringing the budget. Yeah. Um, how, and do you, he's bring, how do you sacrifice? And he's bringing Eligier as well, which is you know the only non-Orica in the WEC now that the Dallara of Settelara is gone. Yeah, and and you know you you want to um, include you want to be inclusive of people that are willing to put that budget up, especially in a um, financial situation that we have right now. So you want to be inclusive for those sorts of entrants, and it's a fine line between pissing those people off. But on the other hand, if he's not safe, then. And he himself is not pulling him, himself out, like you mentioned with Hoshino and uh, Tracy Crone, who is not doing those kinds of races anymore um, because he's just not not that level. Um, if you aren't going to self-police, then the the series should step in and say, hey, you need to be at this standard. You aren't at this standard. We will accommodate you in our lower series where you can improve. Like, for example, ELMS, yep. he's perfectly able to run his car in ELMS. Yeah, I think that's maybe the steps that they could take. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, if, if you are listening and, and wondering if we're taking a very hard line here, we're not saying anything about uh, this particular driver as a person. We're, we're just commenting on what has been said and what's what has been understood i guess um in the in the fallout of, of this event and, and it would it wouldn't it would be different if it was just one driver saying it but the fact that it's been supported by a number of other drivers kind of points to a bigger issue here and uh, for example i know that at the nurburgring you're not allowed to just step into a gt3 car and race a nls race or an uh, or the nurburgring 24 you must do a number of races in lower category machinery in order to prove that you are at the appropriate standard to run an NLS race at that level, so uh, it, it is, yeah, it's it's something I don't want, I don't think people to think we're being uh, unfair or unjust in in this assessment. This is just what has been said external to us, and you know what might uh, what might be the processes that they they have in pay, place. Um, you know, this. Let's not forget. This isn't Knopter's. Let's focusing Knopter in particular. This isn't his first time in an LMP2 car either. You know, he's raced in the previous iteration of LMP2 in the World Endurance Championship and in ELMS and at Le Mans. So it's it's interesting that these comments are coming out now with this iteration. To me, at least, and maybe that's because he's had some time away from an LMP2 machine in the WEC. I don't know. Uh, it's. I, I again, this is something that maybe we can tag here and come back to in a few months and see what the the conversation has gotten to at that point. Maybe I don't know. What do you th- What do you think? It's just Collado complaining. He likes <laughs> doing that, doesn't he? He does. He does like complaining. Uh, he didn't have too much to complain about, though. We're talking about the GTE Pro Race now. Uh, he didn't have too much to complain about. Uh, taking a a class win 
on his birthday as well um for af course yeah right what a what a what a lucky bugger at least that's what i thought um i i heard james collado uh that it was his birthday over the weekend of the race um so yeah 13th of june so happy birthday james you got a nice brand new trophy to go home with you as well and it was a commanding victory from the uh the af corset machines of the the ferrari 488s of uh of piaguidi and collado uh which surprised me particularly considering porsche's outright pace and qualifying but man those left rear tires just did not have a good time at, at portimao yeah, they minced them up, the Porsches. Absolutely, Whoops. and right from the very beginning as well. Yeah, not not so good. Um, they they had a trouble um, trying to keep them alive, and uh, they had some stints where they just completely fell apart, and they had to limp limp round um, to avoid pitting early to then need an extra stop because of the fuel. And and um, as it happened, yeah. one of them had to anyway. The number ninety-one Porsche, the Jimmy Bruni uh, and Michael Christensen car, uh, that had the the issue. Sorry, Jimmy Bruni, Ricard Leitz, and Fred Makarecki car rather uh, that had the issue early on where Bruni torched the tire in the first stint, and they had to come in. They had to come in way early, and so they were forced to make an additional stop. And even with the uh, the safety car playing them back into the mix later on the race, they still finished a lap down on the Ferrari. Yes, and I, like we mentioned with the Glickenhaus, um, maybe something they can or cannot fix for Monza. Um, so it might look the same again where they might have the outright qualifying pace, but then on the, the long runs and when you're trying to double stint tyres, they start falling apart when you've got the Curva Grande, Parabolica, that sort of thing. Yeah, and the Lesmos, yeah. Uh, now, why was it only happening to the Porsches? I mean, you know, it happened to the Glickenhaus, happened to the Porsche and GTM as well. But why in GTE Pro, why only the Porsches? What, any Any theories? Well, you've got the, the, the different factors. So you've got the, the factor of the car, inherent car design itself, and the way that the the, the weight is um, situated around the car. But then that comes into the second point in terms of the setup of mm. the suspension. So to make their car fast, they'll have specific suspension setups, cambers, that sort of thing. And maybe one of those parameters that they need to have set to a specific range um, is different to where Ferrari set up their suspension and it's seemed to work on in terms of making the car fast but not work in terms of making the car fast for a long yeah. time. Keeping keep the tyre alive, yeah. Uh, is that... I, I like... Off the top of my head, one something I'll say is a major contributing factor is the the weight distribution. The fact that the Porsche has the weight over that rear, do you think that might induce a bit more sliding and a bit more pain for that left rear tire, especially through those long loaded corners? Well, I don't think so so much because no? remember the GTE Porsche layout they've they've flipped it's, the, it's, it's mid rear, yeah, yeah, but it's it's effectively on the rear tires. Well, it's in front of the rear tires. <laughs> like how uh, 
488 engine is in front of the tires, the rear tires. Um, Yeah, whatever. I think also maybe it could be uh, an aerodynamic setup. So take, for example, if you trim out the rear wing to get the top speed to try and pass on the long straight, um, you maybe induce a bit of oversteer. And so if you have too much oversteer um, on the rear axle, you're going to get some sliding. You get the sliding, you get the overheating of the surface temperature of the tyre. But on the other hand, it could be the case that if you have too much um, downforce, then you you have a lot of load going through the tyre and it potentially um, overheats that way as well. So there's kind of this fine line of where you position the setup of your car to kind of hit the sweet spot and they missed. Yeah, and and they missed they missed by a long way and it was clear from the outset that they were going to be in tire drama for the entire race and as it happens they were. So that that was kind of the defining story of GTE Pro uh on question mark fortunately it got lost in the 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 other classes. Um I think the the four car class has made it very difficult to sort of pop so to speak um especially when gtem was as crazy as it was and oh my god gtem it was a beautiful beautiful sight for me to see the settler racing team in that beautiful chrome blue ferrari 488 take a victory in in their italian machine they were absolutely over the moon they were in tears of joy after that race and it was so wholesome to see them so happy because they worked so hard in that Delara for so long to get uh to get anywhere and they finally um were able to move to an Italian car that actually had a chance at winning and I didn't expect it to take two races for them to be on the top of the podium and that was awesome sure they got a little bit of help from other factors but let's just focus on Settler for for the first part they were awesome that that was so awesome that's exactly what the GTAM class is about are you part Italian by any chance no nah, not even a little bit oh it makes you say that <laughs> 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 just checking uh oh okay uh, full disclosure i have italian you're gonna play the card huh yeah, there you go yeah play exactly. that play that but, card but like i'm a porsche fan i care much more about porsche's winning races than i do about ferrari's winning races but i do love the passion of the italians and like particularly um particularly uh roberto lacorte his emotion in the interview afterwards he you could not wipe the t- the smile from his face all the tears from his eyes he was just absolutely over the moon yeah, it's brilliant. Um, it's for those that don't know, they have a um, movie of their, them racing at Le Mans with the Dallara. What's it called? Spirit of Le Mans? Uh, the Something Italian like Spirit of Le Mans. There we go. Um, recommend watch it. Recommend it both of them. First one and the second one. Uh, yes, they're, they're brilliant. Yes. Um, it, it really highlights the, their passion. Um, and uh, yeah it's wholesome um you know it's a t- it's the kind of little team that could well now they're with um af corsa so now they're not a little team well anyway. i mean even when um, they were running the delara they were with af corsa af corsa were running that thing only for a year it, it still counts last year it still counts and like oh, 
yeah, 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 okay, whatever. But still, like, they they had to be they had to be on the money and you know, to beat as as Lacorte as a as a bronze driver to beat out the likes of Perfetti, to beat out the likes of, you know, uh Dalalana, uh, Ben Keating, who, by the way, had a shocking race uh, just quietly for Ben. That was really unfortunate. Uh, and, you know, Christian Reed, who has won, like, all of the ELMS races at Portimao ever. Uh, that... They they had to they had to go out and win this race and they absolutely did and so I'm I'm very very happy for them. In fact, that was that was the the part of the race I was most excited by come the end of it. Yeah, it was a real feel good story. Um, quite a lot of their uh, biggest um, competitors had quite embarrassing problems. Um, we've mentioned here the the eighty three car that AF Corsa. Ferrari that's kind of the the, the favourites going into each each round <laughs> at the first stint they had a tyre failure uh, front right and I uh, can't remember I think another Ferrari had the same kind of failure uh, the front right and um, that took them out of contention um, it would have been nice for them to be as part of the fight as well yeah that's... there we go so so that was with Perotto behind the wheel and I think I I'm, I I I think that was due to contact if I remember correctly they I think that was due to contact with a car as they were being lapped um because at that point in time uh Perotto was engaged in a battle with Christian Reed I remember that much in the number 77 car um uh, and the yeah the the number 83 car just kind of fell apart in in one corner and it came out that it, it was a tire deflation which ended up dropping them you know five or six laps back because they had the whole fender and uh the the fairing and the uh suspension that they had to replace uh and after their incredible run at spa frankenchamps it was a, a very much a, a shock to the entire paddock that they had such a, a bad run right at the very beginning um but it wasn't only them who ran into trouble, uh, or rather had trouble run into them. Uh, the Dempsey Proton racing car of uh, Christian Reed, Jackson Evans, and Matt Campbell, and the D-Station racing uh, uh, Aston Martin, the number 777, uh, Tomonobo uh, Fuji behind the wheel at the time, they got uh, caught up with the uh, Glickenhaus incident, the, the 709 uh, crashed into both of them, uh, forcing both of their retirements. Uh, and they're two quite big teams in the uh, in the uh, GTE AM ranks, uh, Dempsey Proton and D-Station, and A, of course, for that matter. So to have them all out of the mix, that's... That's... that's that's a, it, was a, it was an open opportunity that someone had to take. They'll put it that way. Yeah, and you've you got to um, take the opportunities that you get especially in a, a field that's so competitive uh, as this um it was a bit of a shame that you know the, these events robbed the uh race of of a a closer finish but there was still some fighting um from gtm pretty much all the way through the race yeah, absolutely. Uh, fighting at the front were uh, Team Project One and a- the other AF Corsa car, the Thomas Floor, Francesco Caccialetti, and Giancarlo Fischer Keller car. Uh, they were the ones in the mix come the end of the race. That uh, 54 car, 54, 56 car, one of the cars uh, very close to the end of the race, it was the car, uh, the number 54 car, uh, was given a very late penalty for. Uh, 
speeding, uh, sorry, not reducing their speed uh, for the full course yellow, the late full course yellow that we had um, due to the stranded high class car with about 25 minutes left. Uh, so that kind of, they, they, they picked up a drive through for that, but that wouldn't have been enough for the 54 car to have taken the victory. What it did do is it did let the pressure off the, the Settler car, and even with the uh, the number 56 car, Egidio uh, Perfetti, uh, Matteo Cairoli, and Riccardo Perra charging them down, they, they were able to be in a good enough position to, to get to the end with six seconds in hand. So a very, very wholesome result for them. Interesting that the GTE and Porsches didn't suffer the same... Uh, problems as the GTE Pro Porsches in terms of the uh, aggressive tire wear. Uh, any particular insights as to why that might be? GTE M cars are allowed extra sets of tires, right? That's that's yeah, that would be right. Yeah, they 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 have more tires to play with um, and worse drivers. So uh, compared to GTE Pro, so um, part of that is cause and effect, like. They're, they're given extra tires because they're more likely to burn through them. Yeah. But the better the better teams are going to say, okay, we've got better drivers than everyone else, so we're going to run these tires closer to the edge of performance and then just change them each time and just fresh tires, fresh tires, push, push, push. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it was an interesting race in GTEM uh, and a very happy result in the end. The thing that I just want to say uh, as we as we close off this this discussion on the Portimao race, how good has GTM been the last few seasons? Like especially the first stints. Yeah, it's been it's been it's just this train. It's it's something... yeah. I think having having a um, majority have the bronzes in at the start, but then some teams sprinkle in a little extra by having a pro driver or a silver driver in it. it you have that sort of slight imbalance. So instead of just having the bronze train just lapping behind each other and kind of weird risky moves because they're bronzes and they're not going to take those <laughs> risks, but then you, you add someone who's more capable, like the the Jackson Evans or the Tomonobu Fuji, Fuji started the race um, in the D station, it kind of adds that little extra where you get the, the overtakes, which then disrupts and you get the, the kind of imbalances in driver talent, which kind of adds a little extra spice. Um, he kind of effed it up a bit because he went through his front right tire and got a puncture, I think because he was locking up so much, which is a bit embarrassing from one of your better drivers on paper. Is um, that Fuji? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, GTM is just, it's brilliant and they're going to be, a huge grid at Monza. Oh, for it's, GTM. Gonna, it's gonna be awesome because, of course, the Monza round for the WC, which will be the next round on the 18th of July, so about a month away as we are recording this podcast now, uh, that's gonna be the week after the ELMS round there as well. So, a lot of teams will just I, I'm expecting a lot of teams to just double up and say, okay, we're here anyway, we might as well put a car in for the WC race, especially, especially if we're going to Le Mans, because this is going to give us extra testing, extra competition time, and extra time to work on our straight line performance. Um, it's, and by the way, thank you for jogging my memory. Uh, Perotto also had that massive lock up in turn one, which is why the tire ended up going on him as well. Uh, it, 
I've got to say, going from when I first started the, watching the WEC back in 2013, 2014, where GTM was four or five cars and it wasn't all that interesting because there wasn't really that much focus or that much intrigue around it because it, no one cared, to where we are now where we have, you know, double-digit figure cars and a great smattering of personalities and stories and, you know, people that we are interested in seeing how they race and seeing how they go it, it i think the, the focus from the series and the the return of the drivers and the personalities bringing that to the fore that has been a really really good thing to see and like the fact that some of our favorite as in the community's favorite drivers are bronze drivers who uh have these really loud and brilliant personalities i i think that's something that is unique to sports car racing at the top level and something that I really, really enjoy and something that makes watching these races, even if they are, you know, they do fall into lulls sometimes. It just makes them great to watch. Uh, so that's my spiel on GTM. Any other comments about the race in Portimao before we take a quick break? Watch it. Yeah. On YouTube. If you, if you missed it, you can watch it already. They've been posting the races three uh, three days after the race. So, yeah, go ahead and watch it. And and a final note as well, uh, native radio commentary on the app. Thoughts? Great. On Saturday, I couldn't watch, but I could listen. Um, it was a bit harder to follow in just as a radio product because... Um, they are dedicated to um, being commentary, commentary for a video feed, but it's better than not following. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was great. Nice, fantastic. I, I have the really same. Well. I have the same opinion. I'm glad that it's a, it is something that you can do now because, like honestly, through throughout some of the 24 hour races throughout Le Mans, maybe not Le Mans for me personally, but I can see it being a use case for other people that they just need to get out of the house sometimes. And just having it on as as a bit of a, a a walking track, I think that would be a great plan. Uh, so that was Portimao. We're going to take a quick break here. We've got a little bit more coming up after the break, and then we'll wrap it all up. If you're following plenty of motorsport series like I do, you've probably run into trouble with calendars, time zone conversions, and most importantly, missing the start of racing you want to watch. That's why I use the Racing Line app. The Racing Line is your customizable motorsport calendar, giving you up-to-date schedules on all the racing you care about with all major motorsport series covered. Use the day or week view to check out what's on and plan for those busy weekends ahead. The Racing Line allows you to set customizable notifications for events, giving you enough time to get yourselves ready for the racing you want to watch, or for me, to get the race threads ready. Plus, it's all converted into your local time zone, so there's no getting caught out by bad mental maths or daylight saving changes around the world. Find out more at theracingline.app or search The Racing Line on the iOS store. Thank you to The Racing Line for sponsoring this podcast. Welcome back to part two of this endurance chat episode. Still here with Oliver Trovis, uh, and we're going to be updating everyone on where we stand with LMH and LMDH because a lot has happened this year. Of course, as we're getting closer to convergence and to the 100th anniversary of the Le Mans 24 Hours, we are getting more and more news 
pretty much as fast as the racing is coming at us. And of course, we can barely keep up with the racing as it is. So we'll give everyone a bit of an update on where we stand, uh, who we're expecting, who is uh, committed, who is uncommitted, and yeah, where where everything stands uh, heading into the next few seasons. So Ollie, where do we want to start? Okay, so since our last episode, um, one of the biggest tidbits of news um a big would tidbit. be well mm, uh bmw yes so uh they have announced um that they will be committing to lmdh uh i think their instagram the the instagram image or the press release image was uh daytona 2023 uh, which will be their first race potentially um yes um, they um which then you know commits them towards uh prioritizing imsa um there's still unknown whether they'll do a WEC program or if anyone will pick up a bmw to do a WEC program but that's still it hasn't been ruled out it's just them saying they're going to daytona so they're going to do imsa it was kind of really clunkily done <laughs> uh yes so it was it was leaked or it was it was on the Instagram story or the Instagram page of the uh, CEO of BMW M division um, before the rest of the company announced it. So it was kind of all a bit uh, crazy. And, <laughs> you know, is this real? Is it not real? Um, can we trust this person's Instagram account? that sort of thing uh, but then it was finally confirmed um yeah this should be good uh having bmw a, a top um name in uh, top brand in sports car history coming back uh hopefully that means that they'll be coming to le mans that's not confirmed but yes you would think that a uh an oem with a lot of size in europe would be doing that sort of thing the, um, the, on the other hand, BMW Team RLL, when they had the GTLM program in America, they didn't come over to Le Mans um, into the GTE Pro category. Yeah. So there's kind of a seesaw of will they, won't they come over the pond? But you'd think fighting for overall top class honours is worth making the trip. Yeah, absolutely. And, and at Le Mans. And let's not forget, BMW has history at Le Mans as well. They they, they did win the event in 2000... And, no, 1999, I think. 2001. Well, no, was that two, was definitely Audi. Audi won uh, in 2001, 2002 and three, And yeah, because it was 1999 because that was the year that the GR010... Um or Gio, no sorry the, the the yeah the the Toyota um TSO far out it's too late for this stuff the yeah when when the tire blew up with twenty minutes left and Bill Orbelin crashed into him that's that's that was that year um so that was so they've definitely won at Le Mans before and you'd have to expect them to to go back to Le Mans. Like, that's that's a no-brainer. If you have the car to do it that fits the regulations, like, why wouldn't you? Um, What this does mean, though, is that we have, I think, if you look at Le Mans for the last 30 years, you have the only manufacturers who are missing... The only winning manufacturers who will be missing will be uh, 
Bentley from uh, 2003 and McLaren from 1995, every other win at Le Mans will be featured on the grid for the 2023 Le Mans with a BMW's announcement, which is pretty damn cool for the last 30 years. Yeah, I was thinking, geez, when when's Bugatti coming then? <laughs> but, um... No, no, no. They as 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 ridiculous as that would be. No, that's definitely a pipe dream. Yes, um, I think um, it's brilliant in terms of uh, the the cynic kind of view is if there are too many OEMs celebrating an anniversary, then <laughs> there will be good balance of performance. <laughs> because they've all equally got something to fight for. Oh, uh, yeah, that's um, true. That's true. Um, that's, a great, but, that's a great point. That's a great point. If if everyone's uh, politically invested, then they're going to get good balance performance. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, well, I had, I'm had. i celebrating my win from 20 years ago. Oh, well, I'm celebrating my win from 15 years ago. Oh, well, I'm celebrating my win from 100 years ago. Well, yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's a and brilliant... And then you've got Ferrari that's hardly won anything in a long time. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, so, great way, that, uh, like, once they actually figured out that this was the real deal, I think it's really, really cool that they had the race-winning car from 99 as their, you know, release image. Um, you know, people were asking whether or not that's a render, but that was actually a photo, a photo shoot done with that specific car. So, cool to see BMW committed. Um, what we know about the program so far is that it's, as you as you said, Ollie, confirmed for IMSA uh, predominantly, not confirmed for WEC or Le Mans as of yet. Uh, and it's the expectation of uh, the journalists in the know that it will be the Dallara chassis that they'll use to build that LMDH off of. But that is as of yet unconfirmed. Um, so, yeah, another big name in the mix. So, uh, like, that can only be good news. Yes, and hopefully they um will get the budget together to race in uh in Europe and in the World Endurance Championship because that would then lock them in for uh turning up and having the brand represented at Le Mans yeah absolutely uh who else is uh, has recently been uh making waves in the upcoming prototype department i think Peugeot have been the the other one of of extreme note in the last 2 weeks yeah, so Peugeot announced um, that they'll be unveiling their car uh, next month. So in like three weeks' time, um, on the 6th of July, they'll be unveiling their new car. Um, and hopefully it'll be pretty. Um, we'll see. That's the um, dream. Yeah, and expect the we're expecting the livery to kind of be black with kind of acid yellow highlights, which is kind of their... Peugeot Sport electrification kind of angle that they're going with. Uh, maybe all the all the, they'll have all the drivers there as well. Um, so yeah, that's a nice little thing to boost of confidence before um, before Le Mans. Yeah, and um, of course there that is going to be a car that is going to be competing next season as well. So uh, we're going to be seeing that what's seven, eight, nine, ten months before it's actually going to be on track in anger. Yeah, and and part of that is having loads of testing time. The car will probably change since the unveiling, um, just adding little details, um, just tweaking setup and things like that. So maybe little aero tweaks 
it, the chances are this car will just be a model yeah and might not even have an interior it might be made of clay that sort of thing so um things m- might still change um it might be the case that it's kind of like a livery reveal um on a on a model car a full scale model car um but it's still something that's exciting um yeah uh, absolutely yeah. And and keep in mind as well that it is as an LMH going to be subject to a five year homologation. Uh, so the the longer they can delay that uh, locking in process, the the more testing they can do, the more adjustments they can make. So yeah, don't expect this to be the the absolute final. But it is exciting that we're getting getting going to get to see it before Le Mans proper. I think that's that's actually very cool. I wonder had Le Mans not been delayed, would they have tried to do the reveal at Le Mans and try to steal the show twice in a row? probably yeah um yeah and and if you haven't uh heard the drivers for that program has been announced and that that was announced some time ago just to uh re reiterate that uh, it's going to be paul deresta log deval michael jensen uh kevin magnuson gustavo menezes and john eric verne uh and i think there's also a notable uh re- um reserve driver whose name escapes me at the moment as well so i uh, looking at that list that's what like four people with uh, former Formula One talent and then also Gustavo Menezes who was a feeder series driver as well as Mikkel Jensen who's been tearing it up in LMP3, LMP2 and GTE now for the past two or three, four seasons. So that's that, that's a pretty cool lineup and I'm especially excited to see Menezes, uh, sorry, uh, Mikkel Jensen in that car. Yeah, the the just a super high level view. The the new regulations puts more emphasis on the drivers, so you were going to see some really good driver uh, lineups um, from these these teams. Yeah, uh, where should we go next uh, in our journey through LMH and LMDH? Um, VAG is kind of an elephant in the room. Yeah, so so um, let's talk about what we know with VAG. So Porsche and Audi, we know are committed. Uh, we know, or at least that we're expecting that they're going to be running uh, LMDH machines starting from 2023 using a Multimatic chassis based out of the States. Um, so, and that has been confirmed, question mark, as, as a VAG exclusive deal. So they're going to, so only VAG... Uh, uh, companies are going to be able to use the Multimatic. That's at least what we're expecting. Um, both Porsche and Audi are rumored to be using the same, if not very similar, V8 engines. Um, maybe a, a KN derivative for Porsche, or a, a Audi have been confirmed with a twin-turbo V8. That's not the DTM engine. Um, and then, of course, we, we've heard that Penske is going to be back and running that uh, Porsche outfit. Uh, but what about the other VAG brands? What about, say, say Bentley or Lamborghini? Any any light on those yet? So Lamborghini had uh, a sort of concept stage with Dallara, uh, which um, was shelved um, when the VAG group moved to Multimatic and kind of consolidated all onto one. And it looks like they've kind of got an exclusivity with Multimatic in terms of um, filling up Multimatic's production capacity. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, just to rewind, did you say Multimatic were from the States? Uh, I said based in the States because uh, that's that's the old Riley. Uh, the, well, sorry, they absorbed Riley, right? 
and oh, they're running they're running maybe, the IMSA programs. Oh, maybe some Canadians might be angry oh, in the audience. F- sorry, um, North America. <laughs> um, it's all the, the state, same well, to me. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's on the it's other side of the world. Yeah, it's a nation state. That's like that's like so differentiating guess, yeah. between New Zealand and Australia. We're all just basically one big happy family over here, aren't we? Aren't we, Kiwi? Yeah. <laughs> Don't ever say that while we're playing each other in a sporting event. Otherwise, it's, it's an island off Australia, mainland of <laughs> Australia, like Tasmania. Um... <laughs> just a completely unrelated sidebar. Uh, did you know that there is a a problem uh, in world maps or in like map features that uh, that New Zealand just gets completely omitted? Doesn't exist. Yeah, to the, doesn't exist to the point where there is an entire subreddit dedicated to maps without New Zealand. It's great. It's a it's a part of an imagination. Yeah, it's fake. <laughs> it's it's basically Narnia. That's why they filmed all those all those fantasy movies there, right? There we go. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, so based based in North America, not the states. Based in North Lamborghini. America. Yes, Lamborghini. Lamborghini. Um, there's a question mark over what they're doing. Um, they could do it. They, um, I think they will do it. Um, it's the it's the how costly it would be to rebadge a. Um, audi or a porsche multimatic chassis just have a nose swap everything's going to be the same the engine that sort of thing um they would just need to make sure that the, the aerodynamics isn't ruined but hopefully they do a bit more than just a badge swap on the front end um um and the same was potentially going to happen with bentley um so it would be the case where a customer who's a who's part of the bentley family whether that be a team like m sport who have operated and designed the the bentley gt3s um or a a paying customer who has a connection with the bentley brand who wants to operate a bentley program um they potentially didn't want to spend to rehomologate a car with the Bentley badge, which would cost a lot of money, several million. Um, so maybe that those en- that that entry with Bentley, which is now stopped and not happening, that would mean that there's going to be a VAG pro am or a, a VAG customer or privateer car okay. uh, instead. Um, so hopefully there's still an entry there linked to that idea. Um, but it's just not going to be a, a different car, um, a different OEM. Yeah. Um, so Lamborghini's still not ruled out. I think there's potential there. Um, but I think in terms of the VAG brand, uh, I think it will be um, Porsches, Audis, maybe Lamborghinis, but there should be customer cars, uh, hopefully, as part of the VAG uh, state bang. Yeah. Uh, and on your note about Lamborghini um, and the rebadging, uh, it's not anything new that VAG is doing there. I mean, the Lamborghini in the Lamborghini Huracan in GT3 currently runs the same V10 as the Audi R8 in GT3. Same chassis. Same chassis, yeah. The only thing, literally the only thing that's different on those cars is the shell uh, the and the, um, the bodywork, which 
Uh, sorry if uh, we ruined some some illusions of different differences there. I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. It's it's just cheaper. It's just cheaper to make them all the same. I mean, they're still very very good cars, uh, regardless. Uh, who else? We we saw Acura announce an LMDH program uh, earlier in the year. I think that was back at February, so but uh, around the same time as the Sebring Twelve Hours. Have we heard anything more about the Acura program? So um, Wayne Taylor Racing moving from the the Caddy DPI to Acura kind of is a statement of intent in terms of running Acura LMDHs um, or at least one. Um, and Wayne has been pretty vocal about his intentions of going to Le Mans, whether that be them doing some stuff in WEC or just trying to be invited um, from one of the IMSA teams going to France. Uh, we'll wait and see. Um, hopefully there'll be a WEC uh, program uh, with them running under the Honda brand rather than Acura. Yep. Um, Acura is more of an, an American thing. Um Maybe Maya Shank racing as well. Um, after coming off that uh, Indy 500 win, the chances of them getting sponsorships higher. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, a very interesting but... thing because, uh, as far as I'm aware, since they made the announcement, there has not been a peep uh, of of additional news. There was one article um, which uh, had an interview with someone involved the team on Sportscar 365 that said basically nothing truth be told but you know there there is Wayne Taylor racing in in the mix there's Maya Shank uh in the past who else has been running Acuras someone else has been running Acuras at quite a high level so the, it's it's interesting to me that there's not been anything more that's been said beyond yes this is happening um so I'm not even sure what chassis they're gonna go with maybe the Orica considering they're already already running the Orica now um yeah it's there's, that's there's, the, the intention yeah. yeah there's a lot of question marks around that program as it stands at the minute uh so it's interesting to me that that you've specifically pointed out wayne taylor's desire to race at lamar and so i i think yeah considering he's moved that entire program from the the cadillac over to the acura that would not surprise me then to see see them uh make that journey uh, who else from the the states, uh, from from the IMSA side of things, from North America, uh, do we have uh, that, do we have any information about? I think Mazda has been a firm no. Yeah, Mazda are stopping their um, operations. This may be because of the VAG Multimatic kind of exclusivity. Yeah. Um, it's a shame they've got a long history and they were kind of the only ones that, that did DPI interestingly. Yeah. Um, you know, they were the only ones that actually cared about changing the aesthetic of the LMP2. Um, whereas the other ones kind of phoned it in. Um, that's, that's being GM. Kind. Yeah. Uh, GM general motors are pretty much. There's the most open secret, um, with bringing a uh, an LMDH racing, uh, probably just primarily in the states. Hopefully, they'll do customer cars like the way that they operate with the DPIs now. Um, but that's expected to be uh, a carrying on. Um, I, there's no idea with who they're running. Probably staying with Delara again. Um, 
in keeping that connection going. But hopefully the announcement comes soon. They were expected to do an announcement at Belle Isle, which is their home IMSA race. Um, but it's kind of all a bit silent there. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, their DPI was announced in like November uh, before the first race, which was Daytona in January. So and and if I recall they... correctly, that was also after months and months and months and months and months of speculation, rumors, open secrets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So we can kind of expect GM they're going to do it. Um, as for anyone else in America, um, I think that's, that's pretty it. much it. Well, what about the other programs that we know of that uh, over in Europe? So, of course, we know Toyota. Toyota's going to be there. They're already there. So, that's that's a no-brainer. Uh, Glickenhaus is also there currently. Um, but there's a... I would love... I would love to see a more firm commitment to doing the WEC races from Jim. Uh, so, he said... He has said a few times this year... It does not make commercial sense for us to go to Bahrain or to Fuji. We will go if someone sponsors us. Otherwise, we're not going to go. And to me, that's it's a bit shit. <laughs> like that's 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 not what you want to be hearing from your uh, you know LMH competitor that's worked so hard to get a car on the grid. It, it, it is a bit of a, a copy. I like. It's probably, you know, entirely correct. It's probably not going to be something that makes them money. It's probably going to cost quite a fair bit for not a lot of return on investment. They're not selling cars in those markets. That's fine. But, like, bro. Bro. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a bit shit. Yeah. Um, uh, it's kind of a bit of a dick move. Um, you would also say that they're more likely to get a good result in this season compared to next season when Peugeot's probably going to beat them yeah um, so it's kind of like you might as well sink some more cost now and then in future take that sacrifice i can kind of see where he's coming from because i think after fuji if fuji even goes ahead which is a doubt um they would need to air freight the yes. car, uh, everything rather than sea freight which adds a lot of cost um to get back to the next round um but yeah, it's a bit awkward. Yeah, it is a bit awkward. I'd love to see a a more firm, more direct commitment to doing the rest of the season because honestly, a a three round WEC program is a bit shit. Uh, and as as much as I I don't want to say love Glickenhaus, uh, I don't really love the project. I haven't fallen in love with it. But as much as I respect what they're doing, as much as I am intrigued by their progress and very much. Uh, interested in the way that they're going about being open and vocal on social media and you know getting themselves in a bit of hot water sometimes like did you see their um their tweet uh, at toyota after after practice uh, on in yeah. portimao um so for those for those out of the loop there was a video posted by the official fia wc twitter um showing an onboard lap uh on board the Glickenhaus, wherein it spent the entire lap behind the Toyota. And so Toyota Gazoo Racing tweeted, oh yeah, follow us, we'll show you the way. Uh, and then after eclipsing the Toyotas in Free Practice 3, Jim just replied with a screenshot of the, the timing results. Of course, you know, when they got to qualifying and then got to the race and they were a few seconds off the pace, that came back to bite them. But like, hey, I love that. I love that sort of abject arrogance. It's I think it's great for the sport. Um 
I'd love I'd love to see that arrogance met with a commitment to being arrogant for another few rounds. He can't back, but regardless, he can't back up those words. Yeah, because he's just getting spanked, and you know, you say, "Oh, bigging up yourself after being a tenth faster in practice, and then in the race being a second slower." It's like, come on, then. Yeah, get it together. You put your a put your money where your mouth is, but also show us what you're talking about on, on track. track. Yeah, and yeah, that's yet to happen, but. Um, and uh, another thing is, uh, they were talking about potential sales, um, of the the Glickenhaus, um, into potential GT AM or LMP2 teams that are willing to step up, um, to the top class. Uh, Glickenhaus, the, he's pretty vocal about how cheap his platform costs, com- even compared to a uh, LMDH, which is there for lower costs, yeah. Um, in the first place, um, and even taking the Glickenhaus chassis and putting a different body on it, um, is possible. So, um, there may be more potential in doing something like that. But, um, to be honest, if another LMH um, constructor is willing to sell their car for customers wouldn't you rather if you're actually a proper customer you know yeah that's willing to fight for wins rather than take part you wouldn't necessarily go with the Glickenhaus because we're yet to be convinced by its performance yeah like taking this conversation 15 years ago i'd rather buy an audi than a dyson Oof. yeah and you can tell chris that yourself um Speaking of LMH and uh, possible customers, uh, of course, we had Ferrari can get confirmed earlier in the year as a return for 2023 um, with the LMH. Uh, so that is a a very big throwback in terms of their sports car commitment. Uh, the last time they raced at Le Mans was 1973, I think. I want to say that off the top of my head, the 312 PB. Um, yep. And then there was that brief stint in IMSA where they were running the 333 SP. Um, so to see them back with a full WEC top-class effort, that's going to be very, very cool. Like, this is just, you know, a wet dream for sports car fans. you got Porsche, you got Audi, you got Ferrari, uh, you got Peugeot. These are, like, the, the all the big names in sports car history all at once. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's um it's it's going to bring a lot of eyes on um having having experienced what drivers can do to attendance at, at le mans in terms of changing demographics the same thing's going to going to happen with ferrari um yeah. it's going to bring loads of people to the sport and it's going to explode it's going to explode uh so who who else then who who else is uh who else are we missing who who are the the dream the dream teams that we're missing uh just I know this isn't on the run sheet, and I'm going to throw this one completely out of the woodworks, but you said uh, teams and drivers changing the demographics. What about Jaguar? Remember, well, I mean, of course you don't remember the the glory days of the 80s in Group C where like 40 million friggin' Brits came across the pond in their silk-cut Jag tops to, to go to Le Mans and watch them get spanked by Porsche mostly. Does, is Has Jaguar been mentioned at all? Does Jaguar even exist? Um, I have no idea who's going to pay for it because it probably wouldn't be Jaguar themselves. Exactly. Um, Aren't they part of VAG? No. 
No, not anymore. They're, they're owned by Tata. Okay, okay. So, um, yeah, they were in a bit of financial difficulty, uh, to say the least, over, over the pandemic. Yes. Um, it's kind of like the whole Aston Martin style thing, where you know they were running out of money as well. Um, uh, Jaguar Land Rover together as a group. Um, they are a little uh, stuck at the moment. Uh, I don't think they would be willing yeah. to do that. So we basically ruled out all all the the British or English teams then. So no garageistas from the British Isles. Uh, what about McLaren? Uh, that's 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 one. They've got an active GT three. Are they new, are they New Zealanders then? I mean, well, <laughs> I, I kind of got are three. I, I got three quarters of the way through that sentence and then realised that there was one that we'd missed. Um, I mean, that, so uh, they, New Zealand would probably claim them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they. They're the most vocal um, that haven't said that haven't actually done anything. So they've been vocal all the way through the start pre-convergence um, and at the start of defining what Le Mans hypercar is or would be or is now um, without actually putting it, putting anything on the table. Um, you know, they they were the reason for. Um, alongside Aston Martin for doing the road-derived um, hypercar angle um, because that was what the plan was going to be, yeah. having uh, a road-derived hypercar um, that was yet to be unveiled. Um, but then the pandemic... Um, uh, well, the business ran out of money before the pandemic anyway. <laughs> but um, I digress. Uh Yes, that didn't happen. So then LMDH kind of offered uh, another angle to be able to run for much less cost. Um, that has yet to happen yep. uh, because <laughs> the company's still out of money. They sold the building, so they generated a bit of cash. But in my opinion, that's to pay off a lot of debt rather than actually put cash put towards anything, anything yeah. new. I think this partly needs to have some backing from someone or somewhere to to um get running but i think there's an option there of uh doing something with ligier um there is the the connection that zach brown behind mclaren and also united autosports they have the connection with they Ligier had in terms the of... connection, yes. Well, no, they're still the uh, European agents for selling Ligier cars. So they oh, are they? still working with Ligier. Okay. I I, I, It was my understanding that when uh, when the LMP2 United Autosports team, which Zach Brown is also the CEO of, moved to the Orica, that they stopped they lost out on that part of the distribution deal as well. I, 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 that, that was my understanding. Of course, you probably would know better than I. So, so part of that was, um, the way that, uh, United also sports runs in terms of the amateur brings the car. Yeah. And so it, it was the amateur buying a Ligier because United auto sports was in bed with Ligier. Yeah. But then, the amateur wanted a new car and um so the amateur bought an orica themselves and then 
goes to United and says, look, I'm only going to be using your services if you use this car. Yeah. So it was awkward, but I think they still have those connections in place. Um, we haven't really had any um, LMDH confirmed from using the Ligier chassis. We've only seen the Peugeot using a Ligier chassis and Ligier offering bodywork and carbon um, design uh, and aerodynamic support um but that's not using the lmp2 base that's using a custom hypercar chassis um i think there could be the opportunity of uh, a mclaren ligier connection but we shall see there's still the big question mark on money yes and as much as as much as that is a question mark that definitely still needs to be answered I think I share. I will share the opinion of a lot of people where I, when I say Zach Brown should nut up or shut up and stop peacocking around and actually put something to paper. I think that's been the biggest issue with uh, people's perception of the McLaren program slash business at the moment is that Zach says a lot of stuff and not a lot of it has a lot of substance. Well, the difficulty was. Um... Quite a lot of the thing when he was saying a lot of these things, there was a program behind the scenes. Yeah. So um, he could say those things, and then the then, program fell apart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it wasn't his fault that the automotive company was running out of money. Um, so he's not to blame for that, and that caused the. Um, project to be shelved so on the one hand knowing a few things from within um he was right to be teasing when there was a hyper an lmh program um at that time it's just from the outside it looks really shitty and awkward um because he talked all the talk and then nothing happened yeah so. And we had the same thing when they were peacocking about a potential GTE program, and then that never happened. Uh, and then they released, what was it, a Senna GTR, which had GTE leader lights on the side of it, or something like that? It had That car had GTE stickers on it two days before the, the um, <laughs> cloth was lifted from it. They had to print an R sticker and attach it to... and to peel off the E stickers. So... <laughs> brilliant that car was built originally the senna was kind of designed to fit the gt regulation like the road car yeah was kind of designed to make the best gte base possible and then that didn't happen last minute because there was the starting the rumblings of running out of money yeah at that point so so basically um, the senna was meant to be the ford gt of mclaren but money Yes. Yeah. But the Senna GTR is pretty wacky and wild and cool. So yeah, this I'll is true. That. I mean, it's a GTE car. That's anyway. Uh, so that's that's where McLaren stands. Who else? Who who else is really someone who stayed quiet and hasn't really come to the fore or hasn't really committed to anything or has question marks around them uh, that we'd like to see in LMDH or LMH or at least like to hear something from. So the first half of this podcast, we kind of talked about them quite a lot, and that's um, 
Alpine. So Alpine, if you didn't already know, they're part of the kind of Renault group. Yeah. Um, and they've recently bought a brand new Orica chassis to be running in hypercar, or sorry, well, as LMP1 um, in hypercar. That's only eligible for this just this season. Um, so that car will be their main race car at Le Mans, and it shows like a statement of intent. Why would if you if you weren't continuing, why would you buy a brand new car and invest so much in your team if you're just going to do it one and done? It doesn't quite line up. I mean, it's possible. It's perfectly possible. Yeah, it doesn't rule it out, but. Um, it's, it shows a statement of, of intent. Yeah, it's quite a significant expenditure for a car that cannot exist in the regulations beyond this season. And, and they, they've they been very clear that they are not running two cars at Le Mans in the WEC at all. So the fact that they now have two chassis is a bit of a, a, bit of a question there. Yes. Uh, um, but going back to what I wrote on sportscarengineering.co.uk, um, shill, um, is uh, with this um, balancing, um, it, it really shows uh, Alpine fr- or, or Senior Tech, the team running them, from um, the data that you know they, they'll have more than me to look at. They can then have confidence to go forward from within and say, hey, w- it can be possible to run an LMDH at the front of the race uh, to be on par with an LMH. So they're the kind of fence sitters that haven't said anything publicly that are probably the closest to saying yes or convincing board members. Um, And so that brings the massive name of Renault or, and Alpine, or, or either or, back and to Le Mans. Nissan, um, question mark. I mean, Nissan well, kind of exists. Yeah. Nissan's motorsport programs have kind of very much diminished since that terrible 2016 Le Mans for them, but that's still part of the same group. Yeah, so they, there's this um, Nissan, uh, Renault, and Mitsubishi alliance where they all kind of own a little bit of each other. Yeah. So they are kind of hand in hand, and and their their profits are, are kind of shared. Um, so you could argue if they do a, a car, if they could rebadge it um, as a Nissan. Um, so you could have a Renault, you could have an Alpine, you could even have um, a Dacia, because oh, Dacia God. are part of the the Renault um, group. So and and let's not forget uh, one of the Ginetta customers was Dacia. Oh, so my there word. is provenance. There is provenance for having this um group at the top fighting at the top um post um what we have now with Alpine um going into convergence. Uh so I think it's it's very possible. Um there are rumors swirling because of this Alpine program that they've got right now. Will they um, go forward? Um, there's a lot of history with Alpine at Le Mans. There's a lot of history with Renault at Le Mans. Um, they could, you know, they could have one as a Renault. They could have one as an Alpine. Yeah, but it's the same car underneath. Kind of how you've got with an Audi and a yeah, and a Porsche. Porsche. And um, let's not forget as well. Back when uh, Penske first raced the Porsche 917 slash 30, that car had Porsche written on it and also had Audi written on it. Audi was a principal sponsor of that car. And 
with the the efforts that Renault are making at the moment to make Alpine their specialist motorsport division, what with F1 and with, uh, I think, the... Um, what else are they doing at the moment that's, like, very motorsport? Are they doing it in Formula E as well? Anyway, um, we, we could just see it be called a Renault Alpine, uh, you know, with big, beautiful blue liveries with a yellow strip on it for, for Renault. Yeah, it's it's perfectly possible. Um, they could do maybe offset liveries, things like that. Um, oh, so you I, could have a, do a retro some... throwback, yeah. you know, yellow, white, elf kind of oh, thing. Dude, don't um, get me too excited. I, I, I can't get too excited. It's too late for that. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> oh, and before I forget, one more. Um, Hyundai. Hyundai, okay. Yeah, they should be doing it. They should be? Okay, that oh, yes. that lends credence then to this article that came up on Sportscar 365 earlier in the week from uh, Max Angelelli, who was predicting up to eight LMDH manufacturers by 2024. Now, we have four confirmed already, um, which are Acura, Audi, BMW, and Porsche. We're expecting GM to join that. We're expecting, expecting slash supposing potentially Lamborghini. And I was trying to come up with another two to make that eight figure exist because eight to me sounds ridiculous but if you're saying you know maybe lamborghini and maybe uh renault alpine maybe hyundai then that's 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 eight that's that's eight manufacturers yeah it just depends which which way um which at the fork in the road where you choose which regulation you build your car to um which way they're going to go i i thought hyundai would would lean more towards an LMH. Okay. Um maybe um but then on the other hand they might uh do LMDH as a stopgap before uh the um spec hydrogen chassis from Orica and Red Bull comes together and is on the market later down the line. Yeah. Um and to do a, a cheaper stopgap you might as well do an lmdh rather than do a full-blown lmh which is more work um let's not forget that hyundai have done a strategic partnership with um ineos for uh, hydrogen fuel cell tech so um there's precedent there for them to kind of align with hydrogen and i think they're going to be or they have been the most behind the scenes um positive about doing yeah the hydrogen um building to the hydrogen regs and and putting the money down on that so um maybe it's a wait for them for for having the the hydrogen cars ready or maybe they do lmdh as a interim stopgap to prepare for a hydrogen future yeah very interesting i i completely forgotten about their their existence to be honest uh in terms of uh the potential sports car uh, finagling. So that's that's very, very encouraging signs. I'll, I'll be completely honest, I'm more of a waiting to LMDH than I would have preferred. I, I, I know, for, for me at least, part of what makes the allure of Le Mans so special and the allure of sports cars so special is the, uh, the emphasis on technology and the emphasis on sustainability and the emphasis on efficiency. So, so I guess sustainability and efficiency is is 
part of LMDH's costs uh, model. So I guess that that works in that respect. But I, I would I I'd love to see more teams and more manufacturers commit to LMH. Um, so it is a little a little disappointing to me that so many of my favorite sports car manufacturers have gone the LMDH group. But like, on the other hand, like, hot damn, like if they're, if we're seeing eight manufacturers of 2024 LMDH alone, let alone the five or four extra, uh, LMH machinery uh, machines in Toyota, Glickenhaus, Peugeot and Ferrari, like that's, that's good enough for me. And I'm, I'm sure no one, no sports car fan in their right mind will turn their nose up on that. Yeah. I, I would have hoped more um, people being vocal towards LMH because I that's that's what I prefer. There's more development. There's more um, design uh, independence. There's more uh, individuality to, to these cars. But still... Um, as an avenue or a vehicle to get, well, pun in, not intended, <laughs> uh, a vehicle to getting more um, pro drivers fighting for overall wins. Um, that's still still a good narrative. Absolutely. And if the, the balanced performance works on both sides of the pond, as well as it's working currently between the grandfathered LMP1 car and the current LMH machinery, then I think we are going to be in for a great on-tracked product and that's that to me is the thing i'm most excited about the the fact that we can see not only cool technology not only a variety of oems but also those things in conjunction with great racing oh i'm sold i am absolutely into it bring it on as so long as imsa takes the WEC bop system it might be proprietary it might be something the hco doesn't want to chair it, it, they, honestly, they have, they should, because IMSA will be a joke without yeah, it, to yeah. be honest. And we've seen that in the past with IMSA. I didn't say that. Anyway, next round of the WEC is the six hours of Monza on the 18th of July. Uh, that'll be a good um, preview for what to expect at Le Mans, of course. Big, long straights at Monza. Big, long straights at Le Mans. We will see two Glickenhouses there glicken houses glicken high i don't know oh, what is the what is the plural of a glicken house maybe maybe that could be a, a question for the 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 people in the comments who listen to this later what is the plural of a glicken house um either way uh, that is going to be the week after the elms round also at monza um which will be the last hit out for those cars before Le Mans, which is only two months away as, as at the time of recording and that's come along quick because I did not expect, I, it's hard for me to believe that we're already half, most of the way through June, let alone uh, you know, would have had Le Mans in a normal year by now I'm flies when you're stuck at home I'm not even <laughs> stuck at home <laughs> oh Christ, anyway, uh, thank you very much for joining me this evening, Ollie. Thanks for having me. Uh, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our sponsor as well, the theracingline.app, now on Android, uh, so that way you can make sure that you don't miss any of the upcoming sports car action, whether that be ELMS or WC or IMSA for that matter. Uh, and yes, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will have another episode coming up shortly, covering off all the ELMS, hopefully another one uh, or part of that one 
talking about the N24 as well. Um, but until then, uh, yeah, it's been a good time. Peace out! Peace out!